Well, it's my pleasure to introduce Edward J. Epstein, who has uh, been a hero of mine for a long time for his writing and his detective work. I've long thought that in another life, Edward might have been a detective like Nero Wolfe, uh, so adept as is he at uncovering mysteries and uh, sifting through the evidence and coming to conclusions that no one else sees and laying bare the truth of things. Uh, Edward uh, received his bachelor's degree from uh, Cornell University, as he said earlier today, and as he's written in this really fascinating little book that he's published. I urge you to read it. This is really a terrific uh, semi-autobiography of his uh, experience with the Warren Commission and how he came to be involved with this, this whole question. Uh, he received his bachelor's and master's degree from Cornell and a PhD from Harvard in 1974. His master's thesis on the Warren Commission uh, was titled Inquest, the Warren Commission and the Establishment of Truth, and it became a best-selling book, and, and, and I think one of the first major books that questioned uh, not so much the conclusion of the Warren Commission, but how it reached its, its conclusions. His doctoral dissertation on television news was published as the book News from Nowhere. He's taught in uh, political science departments at Harvard, MIT, and UCLA. He's received numerous uh, grants and awards, including the prestigious Financial Times, Booz Allen Prize for uh, Best Biography and Best Business Book for his book uh, Dossier, The Secret History of Arnold Hammer, Armand Hammer. Ten of his books have been excerpted in magazines and newspapers, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Sunday Times of London. Uh, he does have an active website, www.edwardjepstein.com. It's full of uh, terrific information, including some of the, Edward's favorite movies of all time. But it, <laughs> Uh, in, in terms of, uh, uh, and of course, he's written this book in this expose of the Dominique Strauss-Kahn episode of just a couple years ago. He, he's the one who unraveled that, that mystery, um, uh, you know, before the district attorney did. Uh, for, for purposes of uh, this meeting today, uh, Edward has published, in my opinion, the best books on the Kennedy assassination He's, he's compiled them in a large book called The Assassination Chronicles, uh, which if you're interested in the subject is well worth reading. Uh, included in there is a single book that he's published called Legend, The Secret World of Lee Harvey Oswald, which reveals a lot of this information. And uh, I'm not sure that even today any of the facts that are outlined in that book have really been overtaken by any new evidence. I think it stands up very well after 30 or so years since uh, he, he published that book. Um, so in terms of the Kennedy assassination, uh, Edward J. Epstein has been really on the front lines of this controversy. He's, he's written first, he's written the best, uh, he's written the most accurately. He always has uh, tremendous insights on, on all these events, and we're really very fortunate to have Ed with us today. Thank you very much, Edward. Thanks, Jim. And uh, thank you, the new Criterion, for having this wonderful event. <clears throat> uh, for me, as Jim said, it goes back a long way. As a junior at Cornell, I managed to interview all the members of the Warren Commission for an undergraduate paper, which turned into this best-selling book, with one exception. The one exception was the Chief Justice of the United States, who did me an even greater favor than giving me an interview. He wrote me a letter saying he recommends that I speak to the uh, general counsel, J. Lee Rankin. So now, I went to J. Lee Rankin and said, the Chief Justice suggests I speak to you, and that opened every door. So um, I'm not going to talk to you about my diary. It actually started as an idea for a preface. It is, as Jim says, autobiographical. It explains how I got to see these people and how the Warren Commission 
sort of came apart as I looked at it. I got their payroll records that showed some of the lawyers didn't actually work, etc. Um, you know, in a way, the Warren Commission's a dead issue, I believe, now. It wasn't in 1965, but today it is. Um, the Warren Commission, by the way, if you ask me one book to read on the Kennedy assassination, without a doubt, I would say the Warren Report, because everything is there, or almost everything, I should say, not everything, but every, it's the best and most comprehensive uh, summary of what happened on November 22nd. Uh, <clears throat> but the commissioners were not of one mind. Uh, they had different opinions. They, they were, the staff was going in one direction. They were going in another direction. Warren was trying to get the report done by the deadline, which was September 1964, which is when uh, Lyndon Johnson insisted the report be out in September, and it was because he's running for re-election, or was running, against Barry Goldwater. So we have that context, deadline, tremendous pressure, Earl Warren's insistence that they do an independent investigation and appoint their own lawyers, which they did. And they, unfortunately, they weren't able to do everything they wanted to do. But that, you can read all about that in my diary. What I'd like to talk to you about today is what remains the mystery and my idea of how the mystery should be solved. Despite its deficiencies, the Warren Report was right on one central f conclusion, and that is one man alone, Lee Harvey Oswald, fired the fatal bullets that killed Kennedy. Uh, there were qu lots of questions at the time, but there have been at least five independent panels re-examining the ballistics, and they match Oswald's rifle, his palm prints are on the rifle. There's as much crime scene evidence as you would find in any case. So let's uh, not waste time discussing uh, magic bullets and bullets found here and bullets found there. When you really do, look at the case and look at the crime scene, Oswald was the assassin. But that's the easy part of the mystery. You have a lone gunman. Does that mean that he was alone in terms of his planning and sponsorship? Many cases, you have a conspiracy behind a lone gunman or lone trigger man, or lone bomber. In um, federal indictments since the year 2001, 92% have involved a conspiracy charge, although in most of these cases, there was only a single person who was the, planted the bomb, you know, like the underwear bomber who came over, was organized in Yemen, we struck at the people in Yemen. But you have, so you have one, a protagonist who's captured, it doesn't mean that the entire thing has been done at his volition. So the interesting question to me is, was Oswald acting on his own volition or was there a party sponsoring him? <clears throat> I, I wanna give you one example I like uh, from before World War I. <laughs> And that is the assassination of the Archduke Fernanda in Sarajevo. Well, you know, at the time of the assassination, there was one guy walked out behind his car, put a gun to, towards him and shot him, named Princip. And Princip was captured. And everyone assumed for a few days that Princip was the lone assassin. After all, you had the gunman, he fired the bullet, um, he was no way of knowing the Archduke would be at that location. The car had taken a detour, the drive had gone the wrong way. It seemed impossible that there'd be a conspiracy. But unlike Oswald, who was shot in police headquarters before he could be fully or seriously interrogated, a princip lived and he confessed. And he confessed that he was, 
had been trained in Serbia and he had been part of an organized conspiracy, the rest of which was uncovered. What had happened is they had posted four different assassins at different points where the Archduke's car might go. And he just happened, he actually thought the assassination had taken place earlier in the day, he was having a coffee, then he saw the car. My point being that just because we know it's Oswald doesn't mean we know that there was no one behind him. And we might also say, well, you know, Oswald was a misfit. There's no doubt about that. You could even say he's a sick man. There's no doubt about that. But assassins aren't drawn from uh, the ranks of the mentally stable. That's just in movies like The Day of the Jackal where you have a professional assassin. Anyone willing to go out and shoot a president or an archduke or light a bomb off on a plane and kill himself is probably uh, a bit of a social misfit. So you can't exclude Oswald for those reasons. But all this is just speculation. At the time the Warren Commission uh, investigated, which was uh, 1964 essentially, the first meeting was January, they finished their investigation in June 64. They didn't know one very important element in the case. Other people who appeared as witnesses before them, Richard Helms, Jed Hoover, and Robert Kennedy did know about this, but they kept it from the Warren Commission. And this was the parallel plot to assassinate Fidel Castro, which uh, culminated on November 22nd, 1963, the same time Oswald was shooting Kennedy in Dallas. They were handing the assassin his murder weapon. This parallel plot is described in an Inspector General's report, or the Inspector General's report of that title, um, which was assembled by the CIA. It took them several years. It was assembled in 19... 67, and when Richard Helms read it, and I should say Richard Helms became a friend of mine, but when he read it, he ordered all the copies burned but one, the typewriting ribbons destroyed, and the three authors who were inspector generals sworn to secrecy, and he put the file in his safe. Parts of it began leaking out with church committee hearings a little by little. Finally, in 1998, the entire report uh, was published on the Freedom of Information. So we're talking about uh, 1963 or 1964. We're talking about 35 years have, have elapsed. Now we know something new. We know that there was a plot to kill Castro, and we know the details of it. And when you read the report, it reads like the day of the jackal, except it's nonfiction. It's the secret history of what happened that day. And I think when you see what happened that day, and I'm gonna describe it in two seconds, you'll see a tragedy unfolding, a tragedy of hubris on Kennedy's part, and a tragedy which, likely, which provided Fidel Castro and his intelligence service, and I use them interchangeably, the terms, with the motive, the best motive in the world is self-preservation, the means and the opportunity. And when you have all that together and you have the movements Oswald made and the rewards and incentives Oswald was given, you understand why the US ambassador in Mexico Thomas Mann wanted or advised the State Department that there was an indictable case against Fidel Castro. As we said earlier, or as Jim said earlier, he was fired. So, but in any case, we now see the whole picture. And when I wrote my book, I didn't know this. Of course, the Warren Commission didn't know this. The lawyers on the Warren Commission didn't know this. The Chief Justice didn't know this. It all began in late August of 1963. I think you got the context from the symposium this morning. Kennedy was having terrible problems with Castro in Cuba. Uh, the Bay of Pigs 
disastrous failure. Uh, no other president I can imagine would have allowed a land invasion without air support, but Kennedy did. They had to ransom the prisoners of the Bay of Pigs. Humiliation for the character that Joe Kennedy was trying to build in Jack Kennedy, uh, at least the image. Then there came the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, that was a little better for the image, but he had to give up certain things. One of the things that was given up in the Cuban Missile Crisis is he agreed with the Russians that there'd be no further attempts to remove Castro or assassination plots, uh, even though they didn't stick to that agreement. So, uh, so Kennedy had taken over the CIA. He created an executive committee. Robert Kennedy and General Maxwell Taylor were put in charge. The plan was to eliminate Castro. Not necessarily to assassinate him, they didn't care, but get rid of him. And they tried. There was a coup in uh, August uh, 1963 that failed. I might come back to that later because there's some, if I have time, there's some points there. But by late August 63, Kennedy was screaming at Helms, and this is all in the Inspector General report, although Helms has described it in much more vivid terms, basically, get off your ass, get rid of Castro. And as the pressures were building up, and by Kennedy, I mean Robert Kennedy, but Robert Kennedy and Jack Kennedy were operating on the same agenda. Robert Kennedy was basically calling every day and screaming at Helms to do something. So Helms, uh, who's a man I greatly admire, did something. Uh, there was a Cuban who came to them. He was in Havana. He was an associate of Castro's. He headed Castro's youth movement. His name was Orlando Cubella. And he had approached, he had been involved in the failed August coup against Castro. At least they thought he was involved, or he said he was involved. Uh, he would later be accused of betraying it, but at that point they believed he was involved. And he said, um, he, he said he would do, he would like to work for the CIA in helping them remove Castro. They didn't have anyone else, and he did have access to Castro. Because he, as the head of this youth group, he met with Castro. So there's a chance he could shoot him. And uh, he would, you know, all these people, by the way, we're talking about, they're all in their 20s. Castro's probably in his 20s, uh, uh, Cubella's in his 20s, the Oswald's in his 20s, they're all in their 20s, okay? They're not, they're not statesmen or seasoned people. Any case, Helms authorizes them to try to recruit Cubella. Takes place September uh, 5th, the recruitment, in uh, a little city in Brazil, Porto Alegros, where they're having some sort of youth festival, and Cubella, representing Castro, is there. The case officer's name is Nesta Sanchez. He goes there, meets with Cubella, and Cubella says, I would be willing uh, to kill Castro for you uh, under certain conditions. Uh, if I know that this isn't a rogue operation, I I'll do it for you. Okay, so now they have their assassin and he seems perfect. Because he's with this youth organization, he travels around the world so they can have meetings with him. He meets with Castro so he can pull off the assassination. Okay, he returns from Brazil on September 6th to Havana. Cubella, the assassin, the second jackal, he's back there. But no one knows about him until 30 years later, 1992, is that he actually is what's called a dangle. Castro has sent him to meet with the CIA to find out about the CIA's assassination plans. We learned this in 1992 from a Cuban defector who, before he defected, went and got the files. Long suspected that Cubella was a a double agent. But now we know that everything the CIA is telling Cubella is going straight to Castro, okay? So now we're going to go back to September 7th in uh, Havana. Castro goes, the moment he hears this from Cubella, 
he goes to the Brazilian embassy in Havana. Uh, he only made one other trip there in his entire life. Goes there and seeks out an American reporter named Hawkin. He had never sought out an American reporter. So the question is, he seeks out an American reporter at the Brazilian embassy. Remember, the CIA is in Brazil planning his assassination, Castro's. And uh, <clears throat> he now seeks the only Brazilian territory in Havana, calls the American reporter aside and says, I have something to tell you. American leaders are planning to kill Cuban leaders and myself. And I'm paraphrasing here, but it's in my book, it's in Jim's book, it's a fairly well-known quote. He says, if American leaders don't tr stop trying to kill me, if they don't stop in their attempts, they themselves will suffer. So now you have a direct threat from a head of state and he's correct in his assessment. Kennedy is trying to kill him. Nesta Sanchez did try to recruit his assassin. He's now saying that unless they stop, he's giving him a chance. If you stop, this whole thing's forgotten. Okay, this is published by the Associated Press. It goes all over the world. Uh, it's headline news in uh, September 1963, all over America, including New Orleans, where Lee Harvey Oswald has gone after his failed attempt to assassinate Walker in April 63, he's moved to New Orleans. So he reads this story. It's a paper he reads every day. And the story is quite impressive to Lee Harvey Oswald because why is he in New Orleans? He's organizing the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. This was the organization in America set up to defend Castro against basically the attempts of Americans to undermine his regime. It was a subversive organization by definition, by the Attorney General's list. And Oswald has set up the New Orleans branch and um, his hero is Fidel Castro and he's going on radio programs and defending Castro. I, I by the way, spoke to the radio hosts, but I got the tapes. He's about as pro-Castro as you can be, so of course, his hero is now saying, American leaders are trying to kill me, Kennedy's trying to kill me, we, who else is an American leader? If they don't stop, they're gonna suffer. So Oswald knows this, we know that. But who also reads this is uh, Ray Rocker, who's the chief of research uh, in the counterintelligence staff in the CIA in Washington. CIA is divided into hierarchies. Counterintelligence staff is separate. It works for the director. Uh, the boss is uh, James Hesus Angleton, a fairly well-known name. And Angleton, uh, when Rocker brings this to him, he says to him, what can this be? It can't be a coincidence. They checked with, this, with the uh, Western Hemisphere branch, which is under a man called Desmond Fitzgerald, uh, Frankie Fitzgerald's father. Desmond Fitzgerald basically is a close friend of Robert Kennedy's and has long been associated with the Kennedy family. And because his name is Fitzgerald, some people even think he's a cousin. But he's in the CIA heading this, he's executive. And he says, uh, Angleton asks him, and he says, yes, we do have an operation in Brazil. And Angleton says, well, what's the operation? I can't tell you, and finally, Angleton figures it out. It's an assass assassination. So here, you have the Angleton and counterintelligence his brand, say, well, look, it's insecure at very minimum. Castro knows what we're doing in Brazil. That's why he went to the Brazilian embassy. He issued a warning, because he knows we're doing this, okay? This might seem very evident to everyone in the room, but there was a great, drive to kill Castro among the Kennedys. So there was a meeting on September 12th, that's five days later. At the meeting was a representative of the Justice Department, who I believe was Robert Kennedy himself. Robert Kennedy was the Attorney General, of course. A representative of the State Department and Des Fitzgerald. And they discuss 
the, the threat. The, the, do not, their conclusion that they reach uh, is that Castro might well try to kill an American leader in retaliation for the plots against him if they don't succeed, if they continue. But he doesn't have the capability of killing a high-level leader, i.e. President Kennedy. He'll strike at a low-level leader like an ambassador somewhere. On that risk assessment, and this is all in the Inspector General's report, on that risk assessment, that yes, Castro is going to try to, if we keep trying to shoot Castro, he's going to try and shoot one of us, but he's not, he doesn't have the means to kill a president. They authorized Des Fitzgerald to continue the operation. So now we're in mid-September. Kennedy's killed in November, so we're not very far away. Oswald goes to Mexico City, where the Cuban embassy is. The conventional explanation, which may or may not be correct, is after he read in a newspaper, uh, he bought a, a bus ticket and went. There's an alternative explanation that somehow we don't know how he got to the bus in Texas and he took the bus from Texas. But either way, uh, by uh, September 25th, he's in uh, the Cuban embassy in Mexico City. Meanwhile, of course, they're continuing meeting with Cubella. Cubella's now gone to Paris to study French in the Alliance Francaise. So they're meeting him in a safe house in Paris, Nesta Sanchez. Um, Oswald, we'll start with Oswald first. The embassy, he begins, uh, he, he meets with a woman called Sylvia Duran, another woman I interviewed. Uh, she was a Mexican employed by the Cuban uh, embassy, uh, so pro-Cuban that she was actually uh, a close associate, if not the mistress of the Cuban ambassador. And she meets with Oswald not only in the embassy, which is monitored, sporadically by the CIA, which picked up some of the conversations, but also outside the embassy, which isn't uh, monitored. So we don't really know why a, a, a official of the Cuban embassy would meet with, the, with someone outside the embassy. Uh, took him to a party, introduced him to people. We don't know. She was arrested after the assassination, but we'll get to that in a moment. Any case, he goes back to the embassy uh, and he files an application. In the application, he gives all his credentials, including evidence that he shot at General Walker, including his fair play for Cuba committee, including his, uh, uh, the various acts he did, which he thought are on behalf of Castro. Uh, she gives the information to the consul general, a guy called Askew, who gets into an argument with Oswald. We know about the argument because there are various witnesses. We don't know exactly the content, but uh, when the reports are pieced together, it's Oswald kept screaming about someone should kill Kennedy. Uh, we know Castro knew this because Castro, four months after the assassination, met with one of his most trusted couriers, a man called Jack Childs. What he didn't know is Jack Childs was actually working for the FBI and an informant for the FBI. This is the murky world, the intrigues of intelligence. So <laughs> Castro tells Childs, uh, Oswald uh, came in the embassy uh, in, in Mexico City, we're talking about, and uh, threatened to kill Kennedy. He was so angry. He, he didn't, uh, that's all the information. It's a fragment, but the FBI, of course, now knows that it's, the reports of the witnesses are true, that, that somehow Oswald was involved in a discussion whether it was an idle threat of killing Kennedy. Now he leaves the embassy. When Oswald leaves the embassy, I get, October, gets on a bus October 1st, he doesn't go back to New Orleans, he goes to, da to Dallas, Texas, and he begins an underground life where he lives under an alias, O.H. Lee, in a boarding house, moves out from his wife, and makes his wife swear not to tell anyone his whereabouts, which he didn't. So Oswald goes into hiding, and uh, soon thereafter, 
gets a job, which brings him into a building that he could use to shoot Kennedy if Kennedy's car happens to pass it. Meanwhile, let's go back to Paris, because this is a parallel plot. Cubella uh, tells uh, Sanchez, his case officer, he says, look, I'm willing to do this thing for you, but I need to know that the Kennedys were behind it. I want to meet with Robert Kennedy. Pretty amazing, an assassin wants to meet with the Attorney General of America. And everything I say I'm taking from the Inspector General's report. Okay? Now, uh, obviously Kennedy is not gonna go to Paris and meet with an assassin. So Desmond Fitzgerald says, I will go as the personal uh, ambassador to Robert Kennedy. And he could be easily recognized as the person close to the Kennedys. And I, I will uh, tell him that Ke Robert Kennedy has sent me. And he does. And there's a whole report preparing his briefing and everything else. And he goes and meets with Cubella. But Cubella is now asking for a rifle uh, with a telescopic lens to shoot Castro, much like the rifle with a telescopic lens that's in Oswald's garage, or his wife's garage, anyhow. Uh, he also is continually hops on the theme, how do I know that the Kennedys are behind this? So now Fitzgerald does one of the most amazing things. Remember the movie Wag the Dog? Bob De Niro's playing the power behind the throne, and he's uh, uh, meeting with the Hollywood producer. And the Hollywood producer says, hey, how do I know what you, that you have a direct access to the president? And he says, well, you write a line. He picks up his little phone, he dictates the line. We're watching the president on television, and the president suddenly changes and reads the line that, uh, the Dustin Hoffman character, the Hollywood producer, has said, so now he knows that the president's a puppet on this other guy's line. Des Fitzgerald says to Cubella, you write a line and I'll put it into Kennedy's speech. He does. The lines, it's in my book, so I don't want to quote, I can't quote offhand, but the lines are something like, those who act uh, to remove Castro will be considered heroes not uh, terrorists or not villains or whatever. And Kennedy speaks on, I think it's November 17th, we're talking about five days before in Florida, and he says those lines. So now, remember, Cubella is reporting everything back to Cuban intelligence. Castro knows that Kennedy has ignored his warning which should have been so obvious that you wonder how it could be ignored. He's ignored his warning, he's going ahead with the assassination plot, and is going to supply uh, his um, agent with a telescopic rifle, okay? Now something else has happened that I didn't mention. On October 15th, Oswald's visa to Cuba was approved by the foreign ministry, 15th to 17th. We don't know whether Oswald ever found out that it was approved or not. He would have had to phone the embassy or they would have had, to, had some signal. And of course, we know nothing about Oswald during the period where he moves under his underground name, O.H. Lee, into a boarding house in the time he shoots Kennedy. We, you know, we really don't know uh, very much what he was doing. So he could have known or not known but if he did know, it would have been confirmation that he would have, uh, the Cubans had given him an escape route to Cuba with the visa. He would be able to, they had done an act for him. Now we don't know what's in Oswald's mind, okay? But we do know that they have taken an act that if it was done, if one mafia gang was trying to get a member uh, of another mafia gang killed and it gave the potential assassin uh, a reward, that would be taken as an overt act in furtherance of a conspiracy. We don't know in this case. But in any case, 
So Oswald, meanwhile, is, is, he's now working in a Texas book depository. Uh, November 22nd, he goes up to the sixth floor. He arranges the boxes around in a sniper's nest so no one could see him, but he has a line of sight on the street. Uh, he's brought his rifle from the garage where his wife is staying there. Uh, he uh, fires three shots, leaves the rifle, actually escapes the scene, but is caught, kills a policeman, is caught nearby. The very moment that it's announced that Kennedy's dead, someone comes running into the safe house, which is a hotel room in Paris, where they're giving Cubella a weapon. It's not a rifle. They promised to send a rifle to Cuba. It's a, a paper mate ballpoint pen, which has a hidden needle that uh, ejects a uh, nerve poison, which he can use either to eject it into Castro's tea or put it on some paper that Castro would touch and would kill him. They're giving him this weapon, and it, suddenly someone bursts into the room, tells Nesta Sanchez the operation is off, Kennedy's dead, and that's the end of it. Uh, Cubella returns to Havana. There's more to the story there, but I'm not going to get into it. So here's what I think. Well, we understand, and if the Warren Commission had this, they might have understood it. Certainly people like John J. McCloy and Alan Dulles would have certainly been bothered by this. We know, as I said at the beginning, Castro had a motive. He had warned someone not to try to kill him, and he knew that person was ignoring his warnings. He was acting out of self-preservation, and if it wasn't Castro, Cuban intelligence knew about the warning. And so did Lee Harvey Oswald. He could have been completely self-motivated, have decided, this is what I'm going to do because Castro's given this warning. But we know Castro had a motive. We know he, Castro had the means. The means was Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, to the outside world, he might look like a complete jerk. But in the eyes of an intelligence service, he's great. He has an American passport, so he can go back to America. So you have to get an agent in. Uh, he tells him he has a rifle, and he's tried another a previous assassination. Okay, an assassin with a rifle. And um, he uh, seems to be so pro-Castro that he's screaming at them for not being tough enough. What do you have to lose by saying, if you do it, you'll be a hero? Just a few words, and Oswald would be off. Whether they said those words or not, we don't know. But certainly Oswald was the means. The opportunity was his appearance at a very propitious time at the uh, Cuban embassy. Because um, <clears throat> they knew he was desperate to get a visa. He, he was desperate to uh, act in behalf and do a service for Fidel Castro. This was only three weeks, yeah, three weeks after Castro had gone public with his warning. So it wouldn't take much to imagine that a Cuban intelligence officer, seeing this means walk into their office, would say, yeah, do it. And you think about it, what did they have to lose? If Oswald was a double agent for the FBI, which is possible, great. Now the FBI would know that Castro was trying uh, to recruit an assassin, fine. If he shot and missed, which was highly likely, or he was killed in the act, good. You would still send a message to Kennedy. And if he succeeded, and I don't think anyone in a while of streams thought he would, well then you've removed Castro's main enemy in the world. This, so I believe that Thomas Mann was right that if this had not involved uh, reasons of state, if one person was trying to kill another person and that person found out about it and someone came into his uh, uh, purview and said, I'll do the job for you, he would at least be suspect. So I think Castro has to be a suspect. In Castro's defense, it's also possible that Oswald misinterpreted what was said to him in the embassy. Uh, they might have said, go on your way, and he might have thought, as often happens, that my way is this way. 
I think if he found out that they had given him a visa, he might have thought that was a signal to him. Um, whatever it is, I think that if there's any missing element to the puzzle, there's the, uh, relations be between Oswald and Cuba, and I guess you would have to say Oswald and Russia. Which brings us back to the headline on uh, Jim Pearson's article in the Wall Street Journal, his excellent article, that Kennedy was a victim, or I would say casualty, of the Cold War. Somehow, if there wasn't a Cold War going on, I don't believe Oswald would have shot Kennedy. I don't. So, that's my. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Let me just ask one question. Can you say a word about two things, uh, which you haven't covered here? Uh, Francis Gary Powers okay. and Nosenko and Galitsky. Well, you That's know. a long story, I know, but maybe you can abbreviate. Right. Use the microphone, by the way, you, when you ask a question. Uh, I was going to use the microphone. Okay. You know, as Jim said in his talk earlier, Powers was part of the confrontation between America and the Soviet Union. <clears throat> he was shot down in Russia. Um, I also uh, went and saw Powers before he died in a helicopter accident. He was a traffic reporter. In Russia, Powers thought that Oswald had come to his trial. He also thought that the questions that were asked of him had to be supplied by someone very familiar with the operations of the U-2. So the question really there with the powers is, here's Oswald in Russia for over two years. He's in the hands, a palm of the hand of the KGB. They can do anything they want with him. Was he helping them in some way? Okay. Now, to get to Nisenko is a little more interesting. I think um, when we were talking earlier, it was noted that as soon as the Kennedy assassination took place, uh, the, I wouldn't even call it the left wing, the American Communist Party and its close associates began a campaign to say that Oswald was a patsy and framed. Mark Lane um, had been the administrative assistant of the only communist ever elected to American uh, Congress, uh, Vito Marco Antonio, uh, by proportional representation. He published it in the National Guardian, which was the communist uh, newspaper in America. In France, uh, uh, someone called Thomas Buchanan began the same campaign of, uh, that Oswald was framed by uh, the right wing or something like that. Uh, but he also was a later turned out to be at least a propaganda agent for Russia, and he was living in Paris. At the same time, Russia sent to the Warren Commission a uh, intelligence officer called Yuri Nisenko. Uh, he plays a major part in my diary. In fact, one-third the diary you'll see is about Nisenko, because I uh, wound up writing a book uh, based on my interviews with him. But Nisenko, uh, came over, said, I was Oswald's case officer in Russia. I want to see the Warren Commission. And I'm making the story much shorter than it is. And uh, I know exactly what the KGB's relation with Oswald is, or was, and that is zero. He said to me, as much as I would like to blame the KGB, because I hate them beyond belief, truth is they're totally innocent. And Oswald is just a, uh, a nut, okay? So then they began to find questions about uh, Nisenko's story didn't check out. Nisenko wasn't who he said he was. You read all this in Pete Bagley's new book, uh, just coming out, Tenant Bagley's book. He was the case officer for Nisenko. Any case, so then the question rose in my mind, and they, by the way, he never testified before the Warren Commission because Richard Helms went to see uh, Earl Warren and said to him, half the CIA believes this guy's good, 
and half believes he's been sent by the Russians, I strongly recommend you don't see him because we don't know how this case is going to end. And um, Warren, being a man of good judgment, never saw him. So his story never reached the Warren Commission. But my question is, why did the Russians send him uh, to basically reaffirm the Oswald legend? I know you use legend correctly uh, of a story, a folk story that grows up, but a use of it in the intelligence service is that you construct a legend for an asset, for an agent, so he can dupe the people who he's acting against. In other words, it's a fake biography. Uh, and, and certainly Nosenko had one. The question was, uh, what were the Russians concerned about? Now, they just might have been concerned about, because they were in league with the Cubans. We're talking about 1963. We're talking about a, uh, only months after the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, we're talking about a time when Cuba and Russia, or Russia was Cuba's closest ally. And Oswald wrote a letter. <laughs> this letter was amazing, by the way to the Soviet embassy in Washington. And in the letter, he said, I would have finished our business, our business, <laughs> in uh, Mexico City, but I, I ran into an incompetent Cuban embassy official. And he said, I saw uh, Kostov, who referred to Kostikov, who was an agent of the 13th department, and uh, he said, unfortunately, I was, I, if I stayed any longer, I'd have to reveal my real name or something like that. The most conspiratorial letter you've ever read. Of course, all letters to the Soviet embassy were intercepted by the FBI. So the FBI tells its Dallas office, James Hosty, to find Oswald. This is in, you know, 10 days before the assassination. Goes to Oswald's wife, who's living in Irving, Texas, at a friend's home. And she lies and says she doesn't know where her husband is. She has no idea where he is. So FBI doesn't pursue it. They can't find Oswald. If they found Oswald, history would have been very different. Uh, meanwhile, Oswald comes into the FBI headquarters looking for Hosty because he's angry that they bothered his wife. And he says, yes, he says, Hostie's not there, but the secretaries are there. And he leaves a note for Hostie. And the note says, if you don't stop threatening my wife, I think Hostie said they would send his wife and child back to Russia, something like that. I will bomb the FBI headquarters. You know, we're talking in a very narrow frame here. That note never reached the Warren Commission. Uh, because Hosty, when Oswald was arrested for shooting a policeman, suddenly Hosty said, oh my God, that's the guy we're looking for. The first time the FBI realized that Oswald uh, was the president's assassin, he calls up um, Tolson, who's the aide to um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and says, what do I do? I have this note in my mailbox saying the guy's going to blow up the FBI headquarters. Uh, and um, Tolson comes back to him with orders from J. Edgar Hoover, burn everything in your box. So the note was burned. So as Jim said, everyone had something to hide, unrelated to the assassination, incompetence, uh, you know, talk to the Secret Service. They had been out partying the night before. They didn't want an investigation. The FBI didn't want an investigation. The CIA, I believe, knew about the Walker shooting. They didn't want an investigation. Robert Kennedy didn't want an investigation because he was intimately involved in the parallel plot I described, and he wanted to run for president. And in those days, assassinating a foreign leader was not as acceptable as it is with the drone program today. So we had a, uh, and you know, even take Kennedy himself. The Secret Service suggested that he have a bubble on his car because of this right-wing atmosphere we're discussing. And presidents usually traveled in a closed car. In fact, um, 
Kennedy was the last president to travel in an open car. He couldn't have been shot in a closed car. And he refused it because he wanted to expose himself to the crowd. He wanted to be out there hugging. So in a way, he contributed to the situation which allowed the attempt to take place. I'm, not, I'm just saying that the Kennedy family, the autopsy photographs, okay, which are the main crime scene uh, evidence of path of the bullet, crucial evidence. When I was interviewing the single lawyer, because the main lawyer had quit in this area, leaving it to a young assistant district attorney in Philadelphia called Arlen Inspector. We had a barbecue in his backyard, very, very smart guy, Arlen Inspector. And he, he had to do the entire investigation of bullets. And so I, he told me about his single board theory, which as far as I know, probably works, okay? And I said, well, the x-rays and the color photographs of the autopsy, they support this. He said, well, they would. And then he told me that he wasn't allowed to look at the photographs and I should speak to general counsel, J. Lee Rankin. Go to J. Lee Rankin. He said, well, what happened was that Robert Kennedy forbid the Warren Commission from examining the most crucial evidence in the case because he was afraid that these photographs would leak to the, I don't know if it was called the National Enquirer or whatever it was called, those kind of papers, the tabloids, and he didn't want to see his brother's autopsy pictures uh, like Marilyn Monroe's in the tabloids. So Kennedy suppressed this evidence. Now, in 1978, when the House uh, did a, its own investigation, they got the photographs. They were in the National Archives, and they supported all inspectors' view. So it was a non-issue, but there was this gap of, um, say, 14 years where we didn't even know whether the single board theory was possible. Turned out it was possible. But so, uh, you know, there was, uh, everyone had something they didn't want to come out, and Lyndon Johnson, who himself, his theory was very clear. He told Jack Valenti, and it's in Jack Valenti's book is where I got it from, he said, we were running a murder incorporated in the Caribbean. Obviously referring, we didn't know what he was referring to, but he was obviously referring to this plot. And he said it backfired, and he didn't want to hear anything more about it. The CIA got a bulletin, get that girl Sylvia Duran out of prison in Mexico. She would have been arrested by the Mexican before she confesses to something. Everyone, Mexicans wanted this to go away. Uh, the Americans and Lyndon Johnson wanted to get on with his presidency and defeat Barry Goldwater. So <laughs> I'm not going to go into Galitzin. Although I just uh, saw Bob De Niro the other night. To my amazement, De Niro made a movie about Angleton called The Good Shepherd. So I asked him about Angleton. He said, well, yes, he met with Galitzin. He never met with Angleton. I had never met with Galitzin. I didn't think anyone did. I said, you met with Galitzin? Yeah, after the movie, he wrote me. And uh, so these people are still around. Uh, I'll turn it back to you, Tim. OK, well, well, well I'm sorry. I'm, uh, I didn't mean to take all that time. mentioned to a friend that I was coming. He's read every single book on the Kennedy assassination. And he subscribes to all sorts of conspiracy theories. But the, the money, money quote for him is, uh, did Oswald say, I'm just a patsy in this? Did he say that? Yeah. He said well, he's innocent. When did he say that? Because Oswald is a liar. You know, in his state, remember, he was interrogated by the FBI Secret Service and the Dallas Police I gave all sorts of false statements. He didn't own a rifle. The photograph of him, which is the photograph of him, and um, there were like nine copies of it, and I got one copy from George DeMorenshield, another copy from uh, Declan Ford. You know, he just said, I never made that. That was the photograph of him dressed in black holding a rifle. Oswald lied about everything. Now. Henry Wade's view, who's the district attorney of Dallas, was Oswald had been schooled in anti-interrogation. Maybe, maybe not. But in any case, you can't take a word that Oswald says and say, if he says I'm a patsy, it doesn't mean he's a patsy. 
<laughs> it just simply means, that, you know, and we have no, he can't be a patsy because the bullets found in Kennedy on, out of his back in a stretcher, the fragments were ballistically matched to Oswald's rifle. The rifle had Oswald's palm print on it, as did the boxes that were arranged. And palm prints don't last that long, unlike fingerprints, they, the, the moisture evaporates. So, and the hair and the fibers showed that the rifle had been brought up in a, a blanket that, uh, that Oswald had kept the rifle in, in the garage. And, you know, we had photographs of Oswald with the rifle. So basically, uh, you know, there's no question that Oswald was not a patsy. He might have been, uh, it might have been others, but he certainly couldn't have been a patsy. Yes. view about Jack Ruby's role? Well, I don't really understand it. Uh, you know, it's extraordinary for someone to be assassinated in a police station. When you really think about the Kennedy assassination, and now I'm going to say something sympathetic to all the conspiracy theorists. It wasn't a simple case of someone shooting someone. There were three independent or three separate murders at three separate locations by two assassins. Uh, Oswald killed Kennedy, who at that very time was planning to assassinate Oswald's hero. Okay, but we'll leave that one out. Uh, Ruby killed Oswald. And Oswald killed a police officer named J.D. Tippett. Three, I mean, how many crimes are that complicated? You have to explain three murders. The uh, Ruby, you know, there's an explanation that he was just emotional, pulled out his gun, and everyone in Texas has a gun. But I have no, I have no explanation. Uh, um, he. No, there's no evidence that he knew Oswald, but if someone hired him to do it, he wouldn't know Oswald. Uh, but would anyone be crazy enough to shoot someone in police headquarters and think he would get away with it? Well, maybe, maybe Ruby did, but I, I've, I've, never, I've never understood the, the uh, Ruby matter. Uh, but as I, I said earlier, with the, uh, in other assassinations, um, the death of the assassin has helped close the case. So. But you have to worry about that. Could be one more question, if there are any. In discussing the Ruby matter, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, the CIA, or sorry, the Secret Service agents were out drinking the night before. One of the juicier things I've read in the Ruby matter is that Ruby himself actually had a connection to the club where the, uh, the agents the went. Well, possibly in the Sunday the Dallas police. <clears throat> well, you know, the fact that Ruby was, I mean, it was, a, I just watched a documentary CNN did on the Kennedy assassination a few nights ago. And, you know, I, I had not even seen this film before, but the, uh, the police, the courthouse, wherever Oswald was held, the uh, police headquarters, was a circus. All of the journalists. And then pouring in, and they thought Ruby, although he hardly looked like a journalist, they thought he was a journalist. Now, I think a, another mystery is why Oswald killed Tippett. Because uh, if Oswald hadn't killed Tippett, uh, you know, he had already changed his clothes. He had escaped the scene. He was miles away. And he might have had an escape route. So why would he shoot a policeman? Okay, there's, I'm sure, a good answer, like the policeman stopped him. But there are many uh, threads, but the one thread that I don't think is hanging anymore is that Oswald was the assassin. Um, the Ruby question, I think uh, it's hard to accept that in the middle of everything, someone walked in and shot him. Uh, I think we can also question whether Oswald shot Tippett for another reason than we could imagine. Um, 
But I think what can't be questioned is that Oswald's only association that we know of was with two foreign governments, the Russians and the Cubans. Uh, you can say the mafia, you can say uh, uh, big business. I, I couldn't, for, for Esquire magazine in 1966, I wrote an article, 60 Theories. I, uh, well, I listed 60 different theories. That was 1966. God knows how many theories there are today. <laughs> I mean, the way they proliferated. So I, I you know, I, <laughs> I, there's a lot of things you, one could question, but I think if you start out with basics, who do we know Oswald knew? What was Oswald's uh, motivation? What was his ideological bent? You come more or less to the conclusions, you know, that Jim brought out that we're dealing with a, the only defector to the Soviet Union for the American military at the time, a um, dedicated Marxist and dedicated Castroite. Then you have to say, well, is this irrelevant? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Let me give it back to Roger. I'd like to thank uh, Ed for. illuminating talk and for illustrating Delmore Schwartz's observation that even paranoids have enemies. Right. And thank, thank you all for coming.